This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you can. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in roughly 20 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by Alec Reginald Renahan. How are you going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. I see you've just thrown another nickname into the fold there. <laughs> Reginald. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a new one for listeners out there. That is, that is, yes. No, I, I thought I'd just throw that one in to remind any new listeners we've had over the last couple of months that whilst I do call you my equity buddy, Ren, your real name is Alec. So if anyone wants to look you up on social media or on LinkedIn or any other channels and they can't find you because they're typing in w-r-e-n or r-e-n that's why because his name is alex so just thought i would uh let everyone know keep them on their toes yeah that's good (laughs) glad we clarified that at the start yes good so and if in case people don't know bryce is a shortening for bruce well it's not really that short but bryce's real name is bruce lesky (laughs) yes look me up (laughs) Again, Ren telling lies. So, um, this episode, Ren, we are lucky enough to be joined by one of your childhood heroes, Uh, probably still one of your heroes, to be be, uh, honest. Uh, He is a premiership player for the Sydney Swans, and we have had him on the show before, but uh, we thought we'd uh, get him back on... Um, A, because he has uh, been awarded... Well, he was uh, in the podcast awards for 2019, so we thought we'd get him on to chat about his podcast, but also um, since last speaking to him, he has done some research over at Harvard into um, behavioural finance, and it's always good to chat about that. So uh, I'll let you introduce who he is, Ryan. <laughs> I was going to say, you've come off a very long run there to not say his name. Well, so you're his fanboy, epi- so I'll let, you, I'll let you say it. <laughs> in this episode, we're talking to Ted Richards, who was, as Bryce said, uh, well, he used to play for Essendon, Bryce's team, and then came uh, up north and played for my team, the Sydney Swans, won a premiership there in 2012, and since leaving footy, he's got into finance and... Works, uh, works at Six Park 
and has founded the, I guess, rival, but friendly rivalry, uh, the rival podcast, The Richards Report. So if you are looking for more Australian finance content, he's definitely a good one to subscribe to. Um, And yeah, as Bryce said, he was a finalist in the 2019 Australian Podcast Awards. So well done to Ted. Um, In this episode, we talk about we talk about a lot. We talk about behavioural finance. We talk about uh, some of his recent study in the US. We talk about talk about robo advice for people who haven't listened to our first episode. We explain what that means. Um, yeah, so hopefully you guys get a lot out of it and uh, enjoy it. Yeah, it was a good chat. And Ren, one thing before we before we jump into that, uh, we always like keeping abreast of all things investing and Australian economy, and, and I guess also globally speaking as well, but we've had some historic uh, movements with interest rates uh, yesterday. So yesterday was... Yeah, hi- historic because they moved? <laughs> well, yes, they moved down. It's, it's been a while since the RBA has done a lot. Yeah, yeah. So look, we, we won't delve into it too much, but yesterday the Reserve Bank of Australia, otherwise known as the RBA, did cut interest rates by another 0.25%. Uh, taking it to historic lows. Uh, And this does have uh, implications for investors, both uh, positive and negative, depending uh, which way you look at it. And uh, we will unpack it on the weekend for an episode uh, to be released early next week. But we just thought we'd uh, mention it in case uh, anyone's listening and wasn't aware and wants to do a bit of research before we chat about it next week. Yeah. But in a nutshell, great news for mortgage owners and uh, even better news for Bryce's credit card debt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, uh, Ren's again telling lies. Um, <laughs> you, if you were really abreast of this stuff, Ren, then you would know that the uh, interest rate has zero impact on credit card fees. Yeah, I know. I just I, <laughs> I wanted to somehow work something in there. Um, so, yeah. Uh, no, anyway. Don't get into credit card debt because we'll let, the RBA cut. Yeah, let's leave it, leave it. We'll leave it at that and we'll chat more and interest for, rates next week. For Bryce's parents, he's not in credit card debt. He's, he's very responsible and uh, he's almost too responsible, you could say. <laughs> okay. Without further ado, here's our interview with Ted Richards. So today we are joined by one of the Sydney Swans premiership heroes, one of my favourite players to watch back in the day, and now a rival podcast host, a recent finalist at the Australian Podcast Awards, Ted Richards. Welcome to Equity Mates. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Ted, you're one of our earliest guests who's coming back on for a second episode, so it's great to have you back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here, and I feel like yeah, we probably last spoke like two, two and a half years ago, and having podcasts you know, in Australia just like continued to explode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's great, we're, and we're glad to have you back. Your podcast, The Richards Report, has gone from strength to strength, so if our listeners are looking for more finance podcasts, uh, that's definitely one to look for. To kick us off today, for those listeners that haven't heard our first interview, can you tell us just a bit about yourself and your journey to financial media and podcasting? Yeah, sure. So I um, I played football professionally for 16 years and whilst I was playing, I always had a passion for investing. So I um, completed a Bachelor of Commerce and a Master's in Applied Finance and, and then worked under one of Australia's best fund managers, just 
for four years, John Sevier at Early Funds Management. And yes, I really love investing. And when I retired from football in 2016 and, and joined Six Park, where I'm, I'm working now, I I was probably like you guys, you know, listening to a lot of podcasts and a lot of these podcasts that I was listening to at the time were American. And I thought, well, let's give this a go. I'm going to start off by recording some podcasts where it's not going to be simply myself just talking about investing every episode because I think, you know, that might get pretty boring pretty quickly. So I thought, you know, try and get some interesting guests on where I'm asking them questions so where provide um, some insight for listeners where I can educate people and really engage people in um, in the importance of investing and the power of compound returns and because so many people put off investing, be it directly or their superannuation for years and before they know it, a, a decade's gone by. So yeah, long story short, started off the podcast and very pleased to say that people have been listening in. So And from there, I've, I'm learning as I go. I, I'm sometimes I cringe when I've, I've listened to the odd early episode that I put together, but <laughs> I, I feel like because um, I'm you know uh, by no means a trained journalist or anything like that, but I really enjoy the process and some of the feedback I've got has been very encouraging. And the great thing about podcasts is you know the ability to connect with people all around Australia and you know even there's a small little portion of people that listen in from you know parts of the states and things like that so it's it's been very rewarding and very exciting but equally I, I should say what a great job you two are doing as well because I, I I love listening in and the the hard work that you guys went to to um, edit up the Berkshire Hathaway meeting recently you know I, I'm sure I, I know that a lot of work that went into that and eight hours of listening and editing I think I'm sure listeners are very grateful for all the hard work that you guys do. I appreciate the comments, Ted. Yeah, I think it is a lot of work, but and like you, when we listen back to some of our earlier episodes, by God, do we cringe? So we kind of <laughs> refuse to do it. So you're now working in in robo advice, and we'll we'll touch on that a bit later. But you know, in football for 16 years, you know, you started out reasonably young, and you you would have come into a decent salary, you know, playing professional footy what was your sort of philosophy for investing in the early years did you have one or, or was it not until after football that you started to take it really seriously it's you know we often think about sportsmen and, and what they sort of think about these sorts of things so I'm just interested when you start really started out on your investing journey was it was it during footy or, or post yeah I was lucky enough to be drafted right in the middle of year 12 exams and um, so this is back in um, 2000 when I was 17 and so I'm very lucky in life and that, you know, to we drafted into the AFL system, come into a, a bit of money. And my dad gave me a book at the time, which is quite a famous book, Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street. And so I started investing myself in the market, in stocks. And when I look back now, all I see is this bias, this cognitive bias called the Dunning-Kruger bias, where it's where people assess their ability to be good at something far greater than it actually is. And um, I can expand on that further. But yeah, I made a, quite a few expensive mistakes. But for those that haven't read the book, One, One Up on Wall Street, it's, it really preaches that individuals can be, better than it, can be better than professionals when investing in the market. And that may be the case, but the reality is most professionals actually underperform the market. And the book was written actually back in the late 80s. And 
I think times have significantly changed. Even Buffett talks about how much easier it used to be value investing decades ago. And so um, over the years, my investment philosophy has changed from those very early days where I thought I could pick stocks far better than a fund manager to actually being aware of the, the benefits of passive investing. So before we move on from footy and just talk investing, uh, one, one question that we were wondering while we were preparing for this interview, are there any footy players out there that are great investors that we just don't, don't know about? But yeah, before I go through the names, I feel like a lot of people think that football or, say, professional sport and investing are two totally opposite industries, and to a certain extent they are, but they are two immensely competitive industries, and it isn't talent that, that determines whether you're good at either or not. It is discipline is the main thing. And um, so discipline as a footballer and the hard work and discipline as, a, as an investor and the, and the work that you do there. So so there are people that have used their life skills that they've learned in football and, and brought them across to investing. Um, I guess some notable ones are, uh, is in particular Andrew Welsh, who's now on the, um, the young rich list for the AFR, who's has made his money in property in, in Victoria. Uh, I'm not sure in the vicinity of where his wealth's at right now, but it's in the tens of millions of dollars. And Andrew, who's younger than me, I think he's he'd probably used to be 35. So um, he's been incredibly successful over a very short period of time. Chris Judd is on the equity front. Chris, Chris Judd is quite active. I've had a, a chat with him on a podcast episode. He really gets gets into the small cap space and even the, you know, the micro cap space and looking for value down there. Joe Watson's been quite successful is investing in, in different forms. He's got quite a successful property business in Melbourne called Infolio, and also he's in a part owner of a ca- chain of cafes in um, New York. I think they're up to their fourth one over there. But apart from that, like there's when I was at Essendon, James Hurd heard he worked at JB Weir for a while. Mike Pike's an investment banker at uh, Molus. Leo Barry's involved in a um, quite an interesting fund in Melbourne, and uh, Jason Ball. Is a, has been a stockbroker, the ex-Swans Premiership Ruckman. He's been a stockbroker um, for, for quite a while now. So um, there's quite a few former footballers that are well and truly in the industry. Yeah, there you go. We should uh, should be expecting to hear some of them on the Richards reports in coming years, I imagine. I'm yeah, keen to sit down with them and, and, and chat about their story and their transition from football to um, you know, into the world of finance and investing. And um, because well, with Mike Pike at, uh, at Mollus and Investment Banking, you know, Pikey went from you know one extreme with football and the relatively easy hours that we used to work Monday to Friday straight into investment banking. You know, where he's punching out you know fourteen, fifteen hour days, day after day, and but he just loves it. And so, you know, he's got that passion for investing too, and albeit you know slightly different, and it's more in the kind of the M and A space. Yeah. So there's. Ted, as we were preparing for this interview, there's one comment you mentioned, and we were trying to figure out how to fit it in the flow of the interview, and we couldn't quite place it. So we figured we'd just ask it before we got into the into the guts of behavioral finance and robo advice. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned you mentioned you had thoughts on the recent policy discussion around franking credits. Uh, obviously, it was a big topic in the election that's just gone. So what did you think of the debate during the the election, and what are your thoughts around franking credits more generally? Yeah, I, I just found it interesting for so many difference, the fact that franking credits kept on being mentioned time and time again, because I, I personally, so many people 
idea what franking credits were and qualified for them and and how they might actually be of value to people because I had young people inquiring to me that were in quite a high tax bracket about the effects of, of franking them losing franking credits and the reality is it would have you know, minimal impact on them. But when I look at those discussions, it just really highlights to me the power of loss aversion. And it, because people didn't understand what franking credits were or what are, it didn't really matter. All people knew is that they were going to lose something. And it seemed like that was more important than actually the rational side of what they actually are and what they, they uh, represent to the people. And the present bias that people have and the fact that people favour more immediate benefits. So it seems like in different Liberal and Labor policy, they were talking about benefits that may come in the future, but people put this massive emphasis and priority on more immediate benefits. And the third one that I'd like to touch on is this home country bias that people seem to really have in that they invest predominantly in Australian companies for the franking credits, which I guess, you know, it's great if the company is going up, but we can see companies, you know, what people consider blue chip companies like Telstra and AMP, where people are just paying for a dividend through capital losses. So I think that there was a real opportunity for people to kind of really take a moment and reflect on their investment portfolio and the fact that franking credits shouldn't be the... uh, the catalyst for and and the reason why you invest because I think diversification is so so much more important. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's sort of a theme that's run through a lot of our interviews: the importance of diversification. So you know, we're a few minutes into the interview, and you've mentioned the Dunning Kruger effect, home country bias, present bias, and loss aversion. So we're we're getting into the behavioural finance uh, world. So you you recently were studying abroad. Uh, this topic and uh, finance more generally. So do you want to tell us a bit about where you went, how you studied, and then um, let's get into some of the the main features of behavioral finance and what you learned? Yeah. It, so I went over to Harvard Business School last year and did a course on behavioral economics. And the, the reason why I wanted to do it, because I, I'd be speaking with investors both at Six Park and friends and family, footballers, and people I'd come across. And I'd, I'd speak about the benefits of keeping your fees low, diversifying, asset allocation, all these, let's call them buzzwords that we speak about from time to time, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners are aware of. But the reality is investors can be their own worst enemy, yet they see an article flash up on a newspaper, you know, or, you know, some some headline, there's, there's something that comes up on the seven news about something that's coming into property pro- property prices. And all of a sudden, people's emotions can really change um, and make them quite irrational. And the more I saw it, the more that, you know, when emotions are high, logic is low. And I was, I was like, it really, all these little things that we, we, we speak about are important on that asset allocation and diversification. They are so much, so insignificant when it comes to things like just being able to handle the volatility and the ups and downs in the market that you'll experience from time to time, not selling out at the worst possible time. And, and that behavior is just so important. Like fundamental analysis and looking at balance sheets and P&Ls and everything like that, that's great. But that behavioral side is so important too. 
Yeah, we've interviewed a couple of behavioural finance professors and you know a few other experts in in finance and fund management have also said that if there's any degree that they would uh, study if they had the time again, it would be sort of psychology. When you know, so important when it comes to keeping your head straight in the markets, and it's a, a topic that for a beginner investor, no pun intended, but can be hard to get your head around because often you don't really know that you are sort of succumbing to a bias if you. You hadn't really come across it before. And so you just sort of plow, plow on and, and make mistakes and hopefully learn from them. But it's always good to revisit. And so I think, Ted, if you could just talk us through what are some of the most common cognitive biases, particularly for a beginner that you sort of studied or came across over at your time at Harvard? Yeah, sure. Take a backward step. This, these biases affect us. They affect us all. And it's, it's, it's how we think. And um, we may come to conclusions um, two ways. There's, and this is, I'm sure, what your listeners will be aware of. Kahneman and Traversky are, are two people that speak about this a lot. System one and system two ways of thinking. And system one has been fantastic because it gets us the ability to come to conclusions very quickly. But in the process, it, it often... The, uh, we'll often make, make shortcuts to get there. And the other one is system two, where it is a bit more slower, a bit more reflective. So these biases have been fantastic to ensure that we'll evolve over hundreds of thousands of years. But they haven't taken investing into account, as you can appreciate. So um, <laughs> things, yeah, things like loss aversion, really, where the, the, the power of losses are twice as powerful as the feeling you get when you gain something is so relevant to investing because the reality is the market pretty much goes up half the time, you know, on day by day, you know, and each day the, the market's down pretty much, you know, roughly speaking. But if you're checking your portfolio every day, those losses will, you'll feel those losses far more than the, in the ups. And, and that's where we start to be, need to become aware of our, um, our emotions that Dunning-Kruger effect, I feel like is so important for investors because people assess their ability to be greater at something than it is. And I was reading just the other day that some people believe that when it comes to investing people's, I think actually, especially males, their confidence can actually peak in their mid-20s. And I'm not sure how old your um, listeners are, but I felt like when I was reading that, it was quite timely because for your listeners that have um, listened to Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett speak recently uh, um, in their presentation over at Omaha, Charlie Munger, who's one of the best investors of all time, and what is he, 95 or whatever he is, 95 years old, there were so many questions that came through in those those seven or eight hours where he was like, I don't know. I think that's that honesty is um, is just so refreshing to see. But the, the main one that I'd like to touch on before rambling on too long is is confirmation bias. And that's really hard to sidestep. And that's where we don't put the evidence first. We put a conclusion first and, and then we search for all the evidence to support that conclusion. And then we discount that anything that disagrees with that. And um, that's not just relevant to investing, that's relevant to all sorts of things. And I think in the recent election, we saw a lot of confirmation bias with friends and family and in how they see different political parties. But confirmation bias affects fund managers, it affects portfolio managers. And what they'll do, professionals will do, is actually work hard to try and seek out the information that disagrees with them just to ensure that they're not being affected by confirmation bias. Yeah, I think the confirmation bias for 
everyday investors is really important when you think about how you made money on a trade because your analysis could be completely wrong and if you make money you'll you'll think you you had it right and you'll think that analysis holds so that's why people always say you can learn more from the trades you lose money on than the trades you are uh, you make money on i think that's such a fantastic point because it's very hard to differentiate sometimes luck from skill and the reality is we've been in a bull market for quite a while some you know right now and um, I've got no idea what you know the short term and long term movements of the market are but there'll be a lot of people out there that may be lucky that think their analysis has been correct and uh, will always be correct so at this point I imagine some listeners are sufficiently nervous questioning their own decision making <laughs> and confidence <laughs> and confidence yeah 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 so so before we erode that completely I assume that part of the course was about how we better manage and better control for some of these cognitive biases so were there were there any particular skills that you learned that our listeners could use to understand and control their biases yeah, I, I guess the, the, the way that you can mitigate these biases in is awareness will only get you so far because it is who we are. And listeners may have said, may think that, listen, I've, I've, I've listened to podcast episodes before where people talk about behavioral economics, but I, I think it is something that we always need to keep constantly keep thinking about and working away at because. It's just the reality of how we think. So to mitigate against these biases, what we can do is remove the opportunity for human interventions. And um, it's probably just a fancy way of saying remove the ability for us to come in with a bit of gut instinct and go, oh, actually, this is what I'm thinking now and change things. So where we can set up rules, uh, be it rules-based investing or checklists, different um, medical or um, aviation or um, fund managers in, in um, investing have got a lot of success from rules-based investing. And there's even, um, I guess, the most, not the most famous of all, but a very famous one is, is Billy Bean and what he did um, with Moneyball and trying to separate their gut instinct and their thoughts from what they think about recruiting players into professional sport from actually what the data says. And um, so, yeah, remove the opportunity for human interventions, set up rules, and um, I think look at the evidence. And uh, when it comes to investing, um, that means evidence-based investing. So, Ted, with that in mind, did you come back from Harvard and change the way that uh, you were investing or or were you investing with a, a rule-based sort of philosophy prior to going? And I guess the second part of that question is, is there any sort of cognitive bias that um, you still find yourself you know, succumbing to and is the rule-based system the way that you deal with it? Uh, yeah, a couple of things to unpack there. I think the first thing I want to say is I do pick up the things that I'm biased about from time to time, and I also probably don't pick up some things that I'm biased about, and um, you can probably have a chat to my wife sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like I touched on earlier, like the awareness only gets you so far, but I guess my investment philosophy hasn't changed too much because being in the industry and being aware of the evidence, the fact that most active fund managers underperform the the benchmark is consistent with with my thinking of of investing through exchange traded funds so that hasn't changed but it's it's more challenging my own opinion too sometimes be it investing or other other things and, and trying to put things in place to ensure that um 
I'm constantly checking myself. Yeah, it's probably a bit of a long answer there, but I was studying over there with some fantastic people from all different parts of the world, all different parts industries. So political parties, nudge units, and that's their parts of different governments from around the world that can try and work out different ways to engage people to embrace policy. Also working alongside over there, you know, different companies trying to work out how to um, sell products. So it was fascinating to mix with people all around the world and, and look at their I guess the latest research into the psychology and how how we can improve decision making when it comes to different things. Were you in a fraternity over at Harvard? Or? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, no, no, no. It was uh, by no means that. But um, no, I'm um, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been good fun, but um, uh, yeah, it was no. it was it was it was good insight because uh, I'm learning from some fantastic people, and you know, one of the lecturers that taught me over there that um, I actually interviewed in one of the podcasts, John Bashirs. You know, I've been in touch with him quite a few times, and yeah, so I've made some great friendships. So we've seen a lot of Aussie Rules players go over to America and find success as NFL punters. That that was never on the cards for you. <laughs> no, I'm not sure how much you remember about my football career, but kicking wasn't one of my strengths. <laughs> not that I had too many strengths, but um, yeah. So I, I think it's it's fantastic to see that Australians have been able to create a bit of a niche over there when it comes to to kicking in in NFL. And but um, not for me. No, okay, fair enough. I, I do remember you were uh, you were more taking the marks from the kicks. Uh, you know. <laughs> It was a there was a there was a great run there for the Swans defense. Twenty twelve stands out. Anyway, we'll we'll get to my fanboying boying about the Sydney Swans later. We'll stick to investing now. You you mentioned rules based investing, and that's probably a good segue into robo advice, which is something that you're very involved in now through your work with Six Park. So, for our investors who haven't heard of robo advice before, don't know what Six Park does, can you start? Let's start really broad with a few definitions. Can you tell us what robo advice is? Yeah, it's it's just purely investment management, but instead of being done face to face, it's done online. So I guess so many people when they hear robo advice probably rightly think of robots and they think of AI, they think of all these advanced things that algorithmic trading and everything like that. Robo advice is actually quite simple. It is getting people a globally diversified portfolio according to their risk profile and managing it for them going forward. So it's not AI, you know, trading in microseconds and, you know, machine learning and all of that. No, no, it's doesn't that stuff sound cool though? Yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but um, no, it's it's it is like what I touched on before: evidence-based investing and AI and all those those fancy buzzwords sound fantastic narratives. They sound you know great stories, but evidence-based investing is all about, I guess, keeping your fees as low as they can because they're one of the few things you can actually control getting your investment returns on asset allocation rather than um, stock selection, and then um, methodically, systematically rebalancing your portfolio as opposed to trying to time the markets with, by, I guess, yeah, removing that gut instinct. So that, that's, that's simplistically what robo-advice is. So I, I probably prefer the term online investment management or even just investment management, but the name is what it is. <laughs> So it all it all is you know it seems very common sense and you go from a discussion about 
the issues of humans' decision-making and our cognitive biases to this robo-advice, as it's labelled, as a way to control some of the worst impulses of human decisions and to put some rules and some structure around your investing advice. So it all it all seems to make sense. So can you give us a bit of a snapshot of what the world of robo-advice looks like today globally, but then specifically for Australian investors? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, very quickly, robo-advice um, emerged about 10 years ago in the, in the States when the US was going through the, the financial crisis over there, 2007, 2008. And there was a real shake-up in the industry over there where it became aware people overpaying for underperformance, people became aware of conflicts, lack of transparency and Robo-advice, in particular, Betterment and Wealthfront, were probably the two that really emerged over there. And uh, in Australia, you know, listeners will be aware that our financial system didn't have the shake-up that America had 10 years ago. Our banks were quite resilient. Nothing really much changed, which was fantastic at the time that we didn't have to, to go through what parts of the world went through, be it the US or parts of Europe. But the negative consequence of that is our financial system didn't have the shake-up and there wasn't that clean-out. And I feel like what the Royal Commission's done has been that, that catalyst to, to really identify some, some bad behaviour, some of the fees that people are being charged. And it's been that shake-up that a lot of the, the world you know, experienced 10 years ago. And, and so some of the stories that we've been hearing about have, have been horrible. And it's really identified the need for people to really question, take charge of their own uh, investments and go, hang on, what am I paying for here and and what type of service am I getting out of this, be it your own superannuation fund or direct investments. And so that robo-advice in in, uh, Australia is is now growing. We've been a big beneficiary of of the Royal Commission because we're independent we're fully transparent. We have no conflicts, uh, unlike so many in the industry, which are trying to just sell their own products to uh, people that don't need them. So there are a, a number of robo-advisor organizations or, or businesses in Australia now. I'm interested to know, Ted, what, what's your sort of main client base? Is it self-managed super funds? Are you seeing a, an influx of sort of the, the millennials come in and use the service? What, what are some of the trends you're starting to see? Because, you know, as, as a beginner, from a theoretical point of view, it, it makes great sense to be able to just put your money away and, and, and not sort of have to think about it, as you said, from that emotional point of view, take all the emotion out of it. But I guess there's no real sort of standout brand like there is in America with Betterment and, and Wealthfront. So, yeah, what, what sort of client base is, is it at the moment? Yeah, I, I guess our client base is predominantly people in the advice gap. And the advice gap is, is just a term that's used in that the fact that I think it's in the vicinity of 17 to 20% of Australians can actually afford professional investment advice. The other 80 or so percent just either don't have it or can't afford it. And so that's where um, online investment management can be a solution for people that would like help with their investments that don't have the two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars that many financial advisors require to be a traditional uh, investment manager. So, our average account size is about approximately eighty-five thousand. We've got 
a quarter of it, roughly a quarter of our clients would be SMSF trustees that typically invest with us a couple hundred thousand dollars to get exposure to asset classes outside of their circle of competence, like global property, emerging markets, and international shares. But um, we've got multi-million dollar accounts, but equally. Our minimum investment is $10,000, and for someone to get an investment recommendation, we set up the accounts, we execute the trades, manage the portfolio, and provide reporting. And on $10,000, our annual fee is half a percent, so that they pay $50 a year for everything. So, and that's 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 the solution that we provide the market. There is, you know, is really there wasn't a solution there to help people that, that, that didn't have the, the the large sums required traditionally. Yeah, so as a as a podcast at Equity Mates that one hates fees and two started this to try and break down the world of investing and you know allow more people to take control of their money, things like that where you know robo advice is creating so much more accessibility for people who otherwise wouldn't have it. It, it is it is really great and it's great to see the market developing in that way and helping people who who really need it. Let, let's face it, the person with $50,000 in their super account needs the advice more than someone with half a million dollars in their super account. So yeah, it, it is it is great to hear that the market's developing. If, if you were to look ahead and sort of think about where robo-advice is going, where, where do you see the market going both in Australia and globally? We look to the US to see what's going on over there. Um, the disruption in the market is, is, is far more prevalent and it's, it's not a binary su- situation where it, it needs to be either a human advisor option or a tech robo-advice option. We're seeing humans and, and tech solutions working side by side, and, and I guess the, the term to just, to use that now is is digital advice. And um, yeah, so I, we, we looked to the US, um, I was just reading the other day that there was some stat about, uh, I've forgotten it now, but in the US, I, it's in the vicinity of um, 40% of investors have recently changed from a, their past um, financial advisor to a new one. And in the last three or four years, that in this, that stat in Australia is in the vicinity of um, 17% or so. So there is, I guess, a lot happening in the US that we look to. And you know, we look at like Goldman Sachs recently bought a, a large stake in a, a robo-advisor in the UK called Nutmeg because Goldman Sachs want to... Um, start to provide robo-advice solutions to their clients, which is a huge statement because you know, Goldman Sachs, Sachs is traditionally a, um, uh, a bank that was only for the wealthy. And so if they can identify the opportunities here, it is um, a huge tick for uh, the solution. Yeah. So, Ted, you were, you were in the US, you know, you're looking to the US to see a lot of the industry trends in the robo-advice area. So when when you're looking overseas and when you're when you're overseas and you're looking at the market over there, are there are there any key differences you see between U.S. markets and Australian markets that Australian investors and and our listeners um, should really understand? Yeah, I think due to the investment in some of these these businesses, I I found disruption was just so much more evident in the U.S. than it is in Australia. Be it um, the presence that Amazon has had in having now. Um, I was walking past, I can remember walking past these stores that had queues pretty much, and they were just Amazon stores that don't sell anything. All it is is just distribution centers where people just go and pick up boxes that they've had sent there. And wow. 
people are just pretty much like just queuing in and like, you know, 30 seconds walking out with like, you know, six or seven boxes. And I've never experienced anything like that in Australia. You know, we, we might say you see it from time to time at post offices, but these stores are, are quite common. Um, car share is far more disrupted over in, in the US in that I think Mercedes and BMW both now have pretty well-established car car share places where you can car ownership models really changing. And you know, we've spoken about it a fair bit, but wealth management's really changing. ETFs, I think we feel like we've come a long way in understanding about the benefits of exchange-traded funds for the last few years, but they're so much more accepted and embraced over in the US. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. And one more question about America. You were, you're in Harvard, which for many people is sort of, you know, the, the pinnacle of universities globally. So uh, for our listeners that are dreaming of going there or, you know, just want to get some wisdom from someone who's been there, what did, what did you take away from Harvard? What's the sort of, you know, topics that are being discussed there and uh, what, what should we understand that some of the smartest people in the world are thinking about? Oh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I had to really answer that question <laughs> because uh, you may have listeners that have done a degree and, or are in the process of fin- finishing a degree, whether it be at a, a bachelor degree or a master's. But something that I really wa- walked away from, from the course that I did is really, I guess, it reinforcing that education never stops and this putting more emphasis on personal development and, and constantly trying to learn and challenge myself and learn new things because I guess all I wanted to do was, you know, in the middle of doing my commerce degree was just to knock it over and, and finish with it and be, be done with it. But the reality is if a great, great way to live, I think, you know, the importance of personal development and um, be it seasonal short courses in Australia, whatever it is, is just so important. So that's something I've walked away from. Yeah, I'm sure if we all had our time again at uni, we'd approach it a little bit differently. But <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did I did notice, and I, I have heard about this a lot because we've, we've spoken – I've spoken a lot about that disruption, but my sister was an architect in New York for quite a long time. And what's pleasing to see is the effect that the Australia Australia is having on the hospitality industry of different parts of America, and um, what you know the what the flat white is doing, and and our our coffee culture. So like so, so much Joe, of what we talk. Yeah, well. Yeah, I think the, the, the first one that I, I really need to give a shout-out to, or he's a mate of mine, is Nick Stone and, and the hard work that he's done with Bluestone. And um, I think Nick is now up to over 40 cafes uh, through 
different parts of North America. I think he's just ticked over California as well. And Nick's about to go and I think a, a VC's given him uh, something like $60 million to go and take over a take on Starbucks on over in Asia. So it's there's some really interesting stories that's going on in the hospitality space uh, for Australians. So, um, which is really exciting because so much of what I've been speaking about is tech, but um, people still love their coffees too. Yeah, it's, that's really interesting. Have you um, reached out to to him to get on the podcast? He'd be an interesting guest to to get on. Yeah, well, um, I'm I'm actually heading over to run a marathon in New York in November. So I'm oh, nice. to catch up. Yeah, so I'm intend to catch up with Nick while I'm over there, and I've also got a mate, Eddie Buckingham, who's got uh, quite a, a great some restaurants over there. So really exciting with what what Aussies are doing in, in hospitality, uh, both in New York, but you know Washington, Chicago, all that that, that um that northeast there up there. Mm. So Ted, we've we've come to the uh, wrap up section of uh, of the the episode. It's been awesome chatting with you again and refreshing ourselves on on some of the cognitive biases that we all face as an investor. And it's always good to remind ourselves of them because they do play a really sometimes negative impact on on our long term returns. So thanks for sharing them. We always wrap up with three questions, the, the, the same to uh, all of our investors that we get on. So I'll kick it off with uh, the first one being, what are some of your, your must-read books that are investing or otherwise? The first book I'd like to mention is Good to Great by Jim Collins. And it's not so much an investing book, it's probably more of a business management book. I read it back in 2009, 2010, 2010 it was, and he, he, he talks about the flywheel a lot. And I really kind of set up my own personal flywheel back then, and it was one of the best things I've ever done because it really transformed how, how I approach football and, and, and what I wanted to get out of myself. So a, a really good read if people haven't read that. And a bit, bit of a different angle to that one is a book that I love is Robert Cialdini's book on influence. And this is probably a bit more of a, a marketing book, but the the great story that I love about this book is it was it was fairly popular, I think, when it came out, but it it was by no means a bestseller. And then Robert received he received an envelope in the mail from Berkshire Hathaway, and he opened it up, and in it was a letter from Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett to say how much they enjoyed their book, this book and how grateful they are that he wrote it. And as a thank you, they want to give him, I think it was one or two shares in um, Berkshire Hathaway. Wow. And I know, so so that that is a fantastic story in itself, in that what what the, you know, two of the smartest got people ever have, have got from this book. But it's just all about influence and, and you know, talking about you know, social proof, reciprocity, expertise. And so I, I think listeners might like, like to um, check that one out if they haven't. But the last one that I'd like to mention, I think you might have even done a book review on this recently, and that, that is the, the most important thing by Howard Marks. I think that's, that is an absolute ripper of a book. I get so much out of it. And I love the fact that how it all started was Howard used to write these newsletters. And I think it was back in the day when they were, when they were either posted out or, you know, back before people had these um, online newsletters. And Howard, I think he wrote them for like, let me know if I'm telling you things you already know, but I think he wrote them for two or three years before anyone pretty much told him whether they were they were reading it or not. And then one day 
he's found out that, yeah, Warren Buffett's been reading them all and, and how popular they are. And I think Warren was the one to say it. Listen, Howard, if you, if you can kind of get these all together in a book, I'll write the um, – I'll write a blurb for you or whatever. And that's how, how the book came together. And gee, I'm, I'm not sure about you guys when you read it, but um, I feel like it's not, there's more stuff that's highlighted than unhighlighted by the time I got to the end of it. Yeah. I, I definitely think that's one of those books that you can go back to a few times and you learn something new every time. One of the most enjoyable books I've read, and this is by no means an investing book, is um, Andre Agassi's book, Open. I don't know if you guys have read that, but in in that book, he, there's, a, there's a part of it where he talks about one of his greatest regrets in life is, is how long it took him to get into reading. And it's one of the, the, the real things that he wants to teach and encourage his kids. And um, there's a bit of me in that and that I, I didn't get into reading until probably my late teens. And I've got two kids now, three and a half year old and one and a half year old. And I, I think it is such a fantastic um, healthy habit to have is to try and knock over a bit of reading every night. Yeah, 100%. It seems like every guest we get on the show has the same thoughts around reading and how important it's been. So hopefully at this point, it's drilled into our listeners' head. And if they want to read any of those books that you've just touched on, uh, we'll we'll include links to them in the show notes. Because yeah, you're right. We've done a book review on uh, Howard Marks' The Most Important Thing, and that's a cracker of a book. And if Warren Buffett's writing a personal letter uh, thanking someone for writing a book, you can imagine that's that's going to be a bit of a good one as well. Yeah, the other the other thing I want to say is, and I am biased here, so there could be a bit of confirmation bias in this, but I feel like we talk about reading a lot and the importance of that. But I, I think, you know, if you've if you've you've got some good podcasts that you listen to regularly, that that's not a bad substitute, and that that can you know get you act get your brain going and open you up to new things and get you out of your comfort zone a bit and educate yourself and uh, so that's another uh, healthy habit to um, have as well yeah 100 percent hopefully we uh we all get letters from Warren and Charlie at some point <laughs> in the future <laughs> preferably with some Berkshire stock in yeah, there yeah. As well. <laughs> so Ted the second question that we always ask our guests is what's your go-to source for investing information I'm going to give the most boring answer here, but just be open to anything. I'm reading a book right now called Factfulness, which um, some of your listeners might be aware of. And it's talking about evolution and the fact that the world is actually going better than you think. And I'm getting so much out of it. I, sometimes I think if you know the the AFR or the Australian or whatever newspaper you read, they're fantastic. But more often than not, if it, by the time it's in the newspaper, it's too late. So um I think um, it's it's a boring, vague answer, but I think always be open to new ideas from all sorts of opportunities. Yeah, and if people haven't read Factfulness, that, that should definitely go on the list as well. I think Bill Gates bought, I think, you know, hundreds and thousands of copies of the book and handed it out to or gave it out to a whole lot of people graduating university. So, you know, if he's, if he's willing to go to that, to that extent to get it out in the public, then it's definitely worth reading. So, Ted, final question, what is something, a piece of advice that you would give your your younger self? And again, this can be investing related or, or otherwise. I've, I've written down so many quotes over the years that I, I've used in so many different ways. One, one of the, the, the quotes that I, um, that I got from good to great that I really draw upon from time to time is whether, I think the quote is along the lines of whether you live or die, 
endure or fail depends more on what you do your, what you do yourself than what the world does to you. And I, um, uh, when I was at my lowest points of my football career and, and worried about all these what ifs, I, I used to draw upon that quote for um, the fact that I, you know, I've, I've I control my own destiny and, and, and stick with it, the hard work. So that's something that I've used upon for football that I don't know, maybe listeners might find relevant or not. But I guess there's there's so many different quotes out there and, and forms of inspiration. But I, I think that would be the main one and that constant improvement and being open to new ideas because like I touched on before with the Dunning-Kruger, I think you'd probably t- speak to myself when I was 20 years old. You'd pro- I'd probably tell you that I know it all, but uh, I'm now 36. And though, <laughs> the older, though the older I get, the, the more I'm aware that I uh, of, of, of how little I know in, in the world. No, it's a good piece of advice. Yes. So, Ted, at, at this point, we would, um, would normally wrap up the interview, but I, I want to get one more question yes. in because I think I've tipped my hand that I'm a bit of a Swans fan and uh, Swans have had a great run over the last two <laughs> decades, which you've had a key role in, and it seems we're in a bit of a rebuilding year now. So before we wrap up, do you have any advice for the team or for their supporters? Okay. So, do you just want to be consoled, Ren, that it's going to be an okay end to the year? or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of green shoots coming through, so I'm not feeling too bad, but, you know, have to ask the question. Yeah, I did a, I did a podcast where I spoke with Cade Massey, who's a professor over at Wharton, and he, he, he teaches on negotiation, influence, and decision-making, and he also is a consultant to NFL teams. And, and why I bring this up is it's so important because there's so many similarities between Australian sport and American sport as opposed to European soccer because we have salary caps and we have drafts where teams down the bottom of the ladder get better draft picks than teams up the, up the top. So why I tell you all this is equalization works um, I talk about mean reversion and in investing and, and the fact that Swans have been up for a long time, the fact that, yeah, that we are having a, a year that's not as good quite this year, but um, I think the team has been, has, has got to made a, a lot of good decisions and I think the future looks quite bright for the, for the Swans, and, but I'm sure there's many other listeners that are pretty frustrated to hear that. Well, I'm a big Bombers yeah. fan, so can the same be said for them? Or <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it seems like it's been a disappointing year for Essendon. And, yeah, uh, well, I'd say it's been a disappointing year for the Sydney too. But um, I think the Bombers fans were really thinking that'd be uh, well and truly in the top eight at this stage of the year. Mm-hmm. Classic Bombers. Anyway, uh, this is not a football podcast as much <laughs> as we would like it to be. <laughs> it was a it was a good uh, piece of advice that you had there for us, Ted, as well. Good good wrap to the whole episode because you know journey. Uh, sorry, investing is is all about a journey. It's it's a really a lifelong journey. No one really ever perfects the art of it, and it can be sometimes overwhelming as a beginner to uh, try and get your head around everything, and and often feel that you know you need to understand everything before jumping in and and starting your your investing journey. But that's certainly not the case, as as you've even demonstrated. You know, going to Harvard and you know continuously reading and and uh, having that desire to learn more, I think is a is a really important lesson for everyone listening and certainly something that Alec and, and myself try and do day in, day out as well. Yeah, I, saw, I had a, a chat with um, former co-CIO of the World Bank, Mark Nicholson, and I asked him the question, Mark, you know, what, what are what, one of the traits that you need as an investor? And uh, Mark, who's on the investment committee at Six Park, and Mark was saying, one of the first things he said was humility. And it was so refreshing to hear that because so many 
people, we are, we've all got egos and we want to pump ourselves up to make us seem like we're smarter than everyone else. And he was like, no, no, you need humility and you're going to make mistakes and you, you need to be aware of that. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, unless you have anything else, Ren, to add there, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. As I said, thanks for for joining us and, and taking time out to chat to us again, Ted. It's always it's always a pleasure. And as we said at the start, uh, you do run your own your own podcast, Richard's Report. So if uh, our listeners are after some some new refreshing content, head over and, and check out Ted's podcast, and also check out uh, Six Park as well if you're interested in that that uh, robo advice space. So, without uh, if you don't have anything else, friend, we'll we'll leave it there. And uh, thanks for joining us, Ted. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity mates. I will say this about investing: everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at twenty is useful. 